In Matteo Ascaraporte's debut novel, Black Buck, protagonist Darren Bender lives with his mother in New York City, is the manager at a Starbucks, and spends time with a girlfriend he adores. He'd been the valedictorian of a prestigious high school, but never made any other goals for his life because he was content with his life. A chance encounter with the CEO of a tech startup turns Mateo's world upside down, but not in a good way. Mateo is the only person of color in the whole company and endures microaggressions and worse in this cult-like workplace. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I recently spoke to author Mateo Escarapur about his novel, Black Buck. Just give us a, a quick summary of the novel, maybe for those folks who haven't read it yet. Most definitely. So Black Buck is about a young man named Darren who is living in Bedsty, Brooklyn. He has his mother, his girlfriend, his best friend, his neighborhood, and his neighborhood has him. So Darren's also working at a Starbucks in Midtown Manhattan. And one day this suave, smooth, good looking man named Rhett Daniels comes in. And Rhett is the CEO of a startup called Someone, S-U-M-W-N. And he says, you know, give me my regular. But for some reason, Darren says no. And he sells him on another drink. So Rhett, impressed, invites Darren up to the 36th floor where his startup is located. And he extends an offer to Darren to join his elite sales team. Darren reluctantly agrees, and he soon realizes he is not the only black salesman there. He's the only black person in the entire company. So he goes through hell and back in order to make it to the top. And once he's there and he has power, status, and money, he says, you know what? I don't like being the token black guy. So he hatches a plan to help other people of color infiltrate America's tech startup sales teams, redefining what it means to be a minority in the workplace. Incredible. So I want you to tell us about the title. It's a really loaded one, a little contentious, right? And I wonder if, if you got any pushback about the title, but we get to read the the origin of what becomes Darren's nickname, which is kind of a shortened version of Starbucks. But mm -hmm. there are other meanings that we derive when we read the novel of this idea of, of Black Buck. Most definitely, yeah, and thank you for asking. So there are there are a handful of uh, meetings to it, but let's begin with the historical one. The historical connotation of a black buck was the enslaved man who the enslavers um, believed was brawny, unruly, untamable, would steal their women and steal their livestock and burn down the plantation. Um, and, and I didn't choose this title exactly to provoke, but more so uh, as a form of reclamation and to show the parallel between the, the historical idea of the black buck and what Darren is doing, because Darren is not literally going into these uh, organizations and physically burning them down, but he is burning down what they symbolized and paving the road for many others to show that the American dream is for us all and that we're all worthy of chasing success and in some cases achieving it. But as you said, Yvette, um, his, his name is, he becomes Buck or he's given the nickname Buck and he's black. That's another meaning. Uh, he used to work at Starbucks. There's that. Uh, there's also the, the concept around black wealth and what it means for uh, black and brown people in the States and around the world to accrue some generational wealth, uh, which for a large part of our histories, we've been unable to do so due to systemic racism and, and wealth inequality. Um, so that is, uh, that is a theme running through the book as well. So have you experienced any pushback from people who 
they, maybe they don't realize all of the different ways that you want black buck to represent very specific things for you. Have you had to explain it to people? I have, and and I have willingly explained it. it it's not something that I did begrudgingly because um, context matters. And I don't want to hold someone's hand throughout the book and, and say, oh, this is what happens. It's going to be okay. <laughs> but I do think that um, this title is do some explaining if people want to discuss or at least a discussion, let's say. Um, so there were, there were a few people, um, my publisher even at one point said, Hey, you know, some people would love to get a little bit more, I was going to say a little bit more color, <laughs> uh, but a little bit more information around the title. You know, can you, can you tell us why you chose it? Because, um, some folks think that, uh, in order to sell the book, it'll make some, some people uncomfortable. And after I explained all the reasons, and and um, all the all the reasons why I, I came up with it and and its meanings, um, they said, okay, got it, you know, no problem. Mm -hmm. And I've spoken with other with other readers. It's been great to be able to connect with folks, especially older people and older black people who say, hey, at first, you know, I saw your title and I was like, what is this? Because I know, you know, what a what a black bug means in, in the context of American history. Um, but once, you know, I, I pushed myself to open up the book, I understood what you were doing and your genuine and positive intentions. Um, so yeah, there's there's a little pushback here or there, but it's just a, a, something for me to discuss with people if they want. Undoubtedly, there are people who read it or read the title and say, ah, this isn't for me. And I understand. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's something I've experienced too with the word Chicano. So oh. Ch Chicano used to be a slur. And my, my mom's generation um, thought it was, a, considers it a slur. Hmm. Um, and so, of course, now there are Chicano studies departments at universities, and, and the term has been sort of taken back, and um, now it's owned, you know, by the Chicano movement. You know, so it's, it's, it's sort of been reclaimed now. So I get what you're doing, and, and, and I appreciate what you're doing, and it feels very intrinsic in this book. It feels like it is part of the story for Darren to mm -hmm. not have to explain it because he's living through it and mm -hmm. I don't think he can be at someone and act like the word buck the name buck isn't always out on full display for people to um, either label him or to, to have certain expectations about him but for him to be sort of wearing the name in the way that he chooses and as we see this is exactly what happens Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm happy that you brought that up because uh, a question that a lot of people ask me is, did, did Darren have to change? Did he have to become Buck to be successful? And they're also at the same time asking a broader question of, do uh, black and brown people in these white majority environments need to become someone else in order to succeed? And my answer is that um, for Darren to have not only survived but thrived in an organization like someone, he had to become Buck because he could have remained Darren. And what would have happened is that he likely would have either quit or been fired. But that doesn't mean he couldn't have gone to another organization that celebrated who he was and been successful there. But there, there is symbolism in him becoming Buck and really adopting um, this persona or what I like to say, just really becoming a different person. It's not so much an alter ego. He just was thoroughly changed. It, it's showing that he had to leave his name and himself at the door of someone um, and that Buck 
was who he had to be in order to um, succeed at least there. Yeah, I, I like this idea that it's not really an alter ego, that it's he really does have to step into those shoes and be that person it, just in mm -hmm. order to reach sort of his ultimate um, evolution, let's say, without without uh, spoiling the, yes. uh, the novel yes. for everybody. Well, you know, this is a, a bit of a frame novel in that it's it's a novel, but it's also sort of one of these self-help, self-improvement books only only on the surface right with these short pull quotes of blurbs of advice that are interspersed throughout um that i found useful by the way and not just um you know decoration of, yeah exactly <laughs> not just sort of part of the fabric of the of the novel okay like let's all be reminded that this is about uh self-improvement but that they were actually quite useful in a lot of uh, in a lot of instances but at first i thought oh this is going to be a little tongue-in-cheek He's sort of offering this to us with a little bit of a wink and a nod while Darren is moving us through the narrative. Mm -hmm. But but then I started to think, no, you know, um, I think I think maybe the author, I think maybe Mateo wants us to really take these as breadcrumbs as we're moving through the novel. And of course, it's it's integral to the idea of someone, which is this world that Darren willingly enters because the fact is Darren is a good salesman. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, one being that I'm so happy that you realized these um, tips were not tongue in cheek. For me, I wanted to include sales tips yes but tips that could also double as life lessons and that's what many people who i'm speaking with are taking away they're saying you didn't just write these sales tips these are life tips and i said yes exactly because while many people label the book as satire i never do mm -hmm. i'm okay with them you know labeling it in that way because that's what makes sense to them but this book is not just a satire it's also a romance a drama, a comedy, and by the end, it's a thriller. So it, it changes its face from part to part, um, similarly to how Darren does. Um, but the idea of breaking the fourth wall, and for those who haven't read the book, um, these sale tips are very conspicuous. They're bolded, and they break the fourth wall, or Darren, you know, the author of the book, because this is a form of metafiction, breaks the fourth wall and will say, reader, and then uh, address the reader with a sales tip, or as I said before, a life tip. The idea was that this book would be an engaging narrative. Yes, it would pull people in. There would be humor used to underscore the horror, but it would always it would also double as a sales manual because I truly believe that if people pay attention to not only Darren's stories, <clears throat> excuse me, to not only Darren's story, but um, these tips, that they can walk away with at least a basic proficiency in sales. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that they'll just be able to walk in and get an entry-level sales job, even though I think it'll give them an edge and that would be great. And maybe that could happen, but it also means that they will be better equipped to advocate for themselves in a variety of different scenarios, mm -hmm. whether it's asking for a higher salary or speaking up for yourself or a loved one in a hospital scenario or in a university. Um, the applications are, are wide and I, I just hope that some people, um, are actually going to use some of these tips after they close the book. I think so. I definitely think so. I, I find so interesting this idea of satire. Mm. I, I don't, I didn't carry that idea with me through the book. 
there's some really uncomfortable scenes here regarding racism. There's this kind of, oh, innocuous little microaggression of white people at someone constantly telling Darren that he resembles famous black men. And with the first two examples, I was sort of like, those two black men don't even look like each other <laughs> at all. <laughs> so it's just like, and on it goes, right? And so I thought, okay, let me see. Th- these people don't know any black men. And so they make these offhanded and insensitive comparisons. But then there are many other examples that are a lot more serious. They're, you know, it's not just this offhanded kind of, uh, Sydney Poitier, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then, then the examples I think become much more serious. Mm-hmm. So I kept thinking, like, but the it, the satire is one thing, but realistically drawing this someone space is really something else. It's it's not it 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 reached a point where it was like, this is too painfully real. Mm. So last summer when we were watching the murder of George Floyd on television and then the Black Lives Matters protests, how were you considering this book that was waiting patiently to be released? How were you considering how a book that's that people might look at as satirical versus one that's all too real, right? And with everything that's happened to us in our country, while you're waiting for the book to emerge in the world, how are you, how are you thinking about the book and the fact that people want to put a label on it as sat- satire, but then they miss a finer point about what's all too real about what's going on with Darren? Wow, thank you for all of that. There's there's a lot that I want to say, and I'm hoping that I <laughs> that I remember to get to all of it. The first is, you know, we we see it almost comically that these people at someone, uh, again for the listener, S U M W N, that's the the startup. Um, we see them say, "Oh, you look like MLK," then you look like Malcolm X, Cindy Portier, and all of that, right? Showing that these people really don't know any black people. Maybe they have that one black friend. And they they always point to them as, hey, this is my black friend. I'm not racist or I'm not, you know, ignorant. Um, but at the same time, they love playing rap music in the office, right? Mm. Um, and and that is commentary on um, the commercialization the commercialization of um, a lot of black and brown culture in the states and how people repurpose it um, without really caring about the people who create it. But in terms of the satire and how people read it. I had a conversation with a friend about this um, over a year ago, I'd say. And she said, are you prepared for the double read? And I said, I already know what you're referring to. And um, I, I can say that I'm prepared, but but maybe I'm not until the book is actually out. And she was referring to the fact that, like you're saying, Yvette, some people will read this book and say, this man wrote about me and he doesn't know me. And I might not even be you know, I might not even um, say that I'm male, right? Maybe, maybe my gender expression is is female or or uh, non-binary, but I feel as though this man, through writing this story about Darren, is reflecting me, 
This is all too real. And as the book ratchets up from chapter to chapter and part to part, I've had people tell me that they had to put it down for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Then I've had other people say, I read it in one sitting, you know? Um, and then the, 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 it's not binary, even though I'm using the word double, but another prominent read is the person who says, wow, this is really funny. This whole thing, this is just so funny. Wow, you great, great job, Mateo, this is great. I laughed the whole time. And they're, they're missing that depth, right? That you or, or I could understand to the story um, and how some parts are triggering. And what I told my friend is, listen, this book, and I believe that um, all, if not the majority of artistic work serves as a mirror and what people see is a reflection of themselves. And I try not to make it my job to judge a reader and what they take away. And I'm hoping that for those who read it in that second way that I discussed and they thought it was so funny, it was great, that at some point in their lives, uh, if the book lingered in their bones a little bit, they'll say, wait a second, you know, a month, a couple months, a year later, something triggers them and they say, wait a second, was that one part in Black Buck not as funny as I thought it was? And why did I think that way? But to address the part about George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain, Ahmaud Arbery, all of these people who were murdered and executed and then the protests that happened. What I say is that, you know, I began writing this book in in January 2018 and I finished the first draft uh, in May 2018. And then, of course, I revised. Um, But I wasn't writing to this moment. I was just writing to my reality in the way that I saw the world at that time with the knowledge that this moment that we are experiencing is just connected to many other moments from the past that have have gotten us to where we are today. So that's what I was writing to. Um, The last thing I'll say on this is, you know, watching that video of George Floyd, eight minutes and 46 seconds, seeing everything else that was going on. In that moment, uh, you know, I felt as though I was being pulled by the undertow of the reality of the nation that we live in. So, you know, for a while, I couldn't even really think about my own book and a while to me is like a week or two um, because I feel as though I could write in a hurricane, you know, that I'm usually not phased. I just try not to, um, I try not to internalize too much of what is going on, at least in my heart, but think about it and think about how I can act. Um, but this, the, the, this past summer's events really got me. And after I pulled myself out of an abyss a little bit, I said, you know, I'm so happy that this book is coming out because for so many of us who have felt invisible or voiceless or that we can hear our own voices, but we're screaming into a void that this book will let you know or let them know that they're not paranoid. They're not crazy. They're not overly sensitive when they believe that something is amiss. And I also hope that this book would facilitate necessary conversations. So what you're saying to me also underscores this idea about what literature does it it's not just for a specific moment in in this case your book is waiting in the wings to emerge at a certain you know on the release date and it just so happens mm-hmm. that it's on the heels of this this summer this last summer and yet mm-hmm. it's going to remain sort of timeless in that you know it, no matter what happens next, it exists in um, in sort of like this special canonical space of mm. of works that from 
from the 60s, from the 70s, from the 80s, from the aughts, along with those other works. So I hear what you're saying. It's you weren't necessarily, you could never have predicted what would happen in the summer of 2020 back in Mm -hmm. 2018. And it just underscores the point that this is America. You know, this is what you have lived this is what you live. This is what you've experienced. And it's your book becomes sort of out of time. It's sort of mm. not, it's not sort of encased just for 2021, right? So there, yeah, there's something yeah. very interesting there to me um, about what it documents and then also what it mm-hmm. can portend for the future. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and to just dig in there a little bit, um, when I was writing this book, even after I completed the first draft until many months later, in or eight months after I began the book that, um, it was told to me by another author, a very popular and established author, Jason Reynolds, um, mm-hmm. publishes many middle grade and young adult books. Mm-hmm. He opened my eyes to the fact that I'm writing in a tradition that I am writing something original. Yes, but it's part of a larger tradition of writing about what it means to be the only one or, or one of the few in uh, these white majority environments, um, or even not, you know, um, even not making race the focal point um, of what it means for some people to be the only one when they are the only woman or the only person of a certain uh, tradition. And of course, my narrative um, isn't speaking directly people in terms of the plot, but they can still see themselves in it and still understand the wider tradition that Black Buck has a place in. Um, I think that, you know, it, it's it's also important to know that this book isn't 400 pages. It's really like 386, but give or take with the extra pages. It's not, it's not 400 pages of doom and gloom or tragedy and trauma. There's a lot of joy and we, we discussed, you know, we've laughed a little bit throughout this podcast. There are intentional moments of levity because our lives is not just a, it's not just a tragedy 24 seven. I laugh at least 10, if not 20 times more than I cry, you know? <laughs> and it was important for me to celebrate our joy and our triumphs and our successes um, and, and the, the zeal that so many of us have for life. Um, in this book. So I'm hoping that those who read it, if they haven't read it yet, uh, will be able to pick up on that too. Yeah, I'm so glad you circled back to that because it's true. And there's something about your ear for dialogue Mm. that I think there were some of the moments that are uh, just sort of inherently funny are just like the, the... the things that your characters say to each other the, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and some of the conversations. I mean, some of the stuff with Clyde, you know, some some of the, the folks at someone, it's, it's sort of like uh, those were funny too, but for different reasons. But there's just something yeah. about the way that you capture dialogue that you feel like you're eavesdropping on a conversation that's kind of funny or a little bit absurd or they're talking about something ridiculous. And no, there are there are tremendous moments of, of humor in the book. Um, now, why do you know so much about Starbucks drinks? <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't, uh, I don't know. I, okay. I haven't really mentioned this in many interviews before. I didn't do a ton of research for this book, um, namely because I come from the world of sales and startups. I didn't need to research anything about them. I know them intimately. Um, but Starbucks 
uh, I had to do a little bit of research to figure out, you know, I don't drink Starbucks. If, I, if you ever catch me at a Starbucks, um, you probably wouldn't, but if you did, then I'm probably just ordering a tea. I don't like coffee, just like Darren, even though, you know, of course <laughs> I said Darren and I are not the same person. We share um, the fact that we don't like coffee, even though I respect it. And I respect the fact that it uh, it was and is a sacred drink for, for many types of cultures. But um, <laughs> I had to do some research. I had to figure out like, what are some of these drinks that Starbucks comes out with? And then I realized that Starbucks itself, while um, I do respect I respect aspects of it for sure. Um, it can be a little absurd in the <laughs> fact that they're coming out with all these newfangled drinks every year. You know, in the book, they're, they're talking about grasshopper frappuccinos, which are actually a thing, I think. Um, <laughs> and they do have the, the aprons that the baristas wear actually do have a significance, just like in martial arts with the belt, the colors <laughs> matter. And I was like, man, this is I'm so happy I picked Star Starbucks. There's <laughs> so much in here. But I came up, I, I decided to, to pick Starbucks because I set this book. Well, again, it's not about me. It's not about the company I used to work at. I set this in the same building where I used to work. Mm. I said, uh, you know, I'm doing so much in this book. I'm not going to come up with a whole new like building. Um, so I set it in the building that I used to work with, uh, that I used to work in, which coincidentally is also where my publisher is located. But wow. I didn't even know it. Right. So at the at the bottom of that building on the first floor is a Starbucks. And I was thinking that Darren, you know, for him to get to the 36th floor, the only place that he would really likely meet. Right. I mean, I could have came up with a, a few other dozen ways, but um, in line with with the authenticity that I wanted, the place that he would be most likely to meet right would be in that Starbucks. Uh -huh. So let me have him work in that Starbucks and then having him work in that Starbucks will also present a question for the reader of saying, why did this young man graduate as valedictorian from a prestigious public school, but he's working in Starbucks? So, so that question allows me to um, have the reader say, why, why is he working there? And then for me in discussions to ask the reader, why does that look like a failure? Oh, yeah. Right? Because Darren is happy when he's at that Starbucks. He has a well-oiled machine. Like I said in the beginning, he has his girlfriend, he has his mom, his best friend, his neighborhood. Um, he's feeling good and he's feeling purposeful. But <laughs> many people who read the book say, yeah, why? But that doesn't make sense. Why was this guy working at Starbucks as if it's a huge failure? But, but many of us in America believe that if you are valedictorian or if you have these certain accolades that you should be working on Wall Street. Right. Yeah. And 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 just, you know, uh, pushing profits over people all the time. So um, that was another reason why why I said it there. But it also allowed me to show that Darren was comfortable and he, like many of us, rarely, if ever, ask ourselves, why are we here? Why do we even exist? And when Rhett comes in and then he, he speaks with Darren a day or two later, he's basically forcing that question upon Darren. Mm -hmm. Why are you here? Are you here just to work at Starbucks or do you want to come and change the world? And it's the first time that Darren's really encountered that question and it, it uh, incites something in him. And that's also another reason why he begins to work at uh, someone. But he was really someone who, um, you know, all work is honorable, right? He's really yeah. somebody that was living that. And when Rhett comes into the picture, I feel like, like Darren's really face to face with this idea 
that I think all of us brush up against, which is, do we live to work or do we work to live, right? And it, it, mm. it just, someone becomes this kind of all-consuming space for him. I mean, he's reinventing himself or making the attempt, right? Mm-hmm. So how much does that resonate with you, this idea of reinvention? I know this is not autobiographical necessarily, but just this idea of reinvention for you to become a writer. Because I've been really interested in this journey you've been on. You didn't do an MFA. You did your own MFA, (laughs) Um, (laughs) a hard-won MFA. So how does that, this idea of reinvention motivate you in terms of your life now as a writer? Wow. A couple of things to say. One is, um, yeah, you know, I, I make it a point of letting people know that it's not one-to-one autobiographical, but it's definitely inspired by parts of my life. And, um, you know, you haven't asked the question, which is, (laughs) which is good, but people will say, how much of your life is in this? And then that gives me the opportunity to mess with them a little bit. (laughs) Cause I'll say, I don't know, 24.6% or sometimes they'll say (laughs) 34.2. Uh, but people have caught on, you know, Scott Simon from, uh, NPR weekend edition caught on and called me out. (laughs) And, uh, but yeah, so there, there are definitely, um, parts of my own life in the book. Um, but the second thing, and, and I'm so happy that you brought this up, is you know I'm, I'm going to give a lecture actually next month, and it's called Black Buck: The Art of Reinvention, uh-huh. um, talking about how Buck reinvents himself, but also how I did in my life. And reinvention for me, you know, you discussed, uh, you brought up the the concept of evolution earlier. I'm constantly trying to evolve. There will be, I mean, it's already happening, but in a year or in a couple months, I'm going to hear about certain parts of Black Buck from reviewers, and this is really already happening, and then saying, hey, you know, um, I was intentional about 90 to 95% in there, but there was a five, there was 5% that I was blind to, or, or excuse me, um, to not use such ableist language that I couldn't really see clearly. Mm-hmm. And people through, uh, through, through sh- sharing their perspectives has helped me illuminate, you know, those, those um, places that I couldn't really see. So, in terms of reinvention, though, you're right. I, I came out of this world of startups and sales, and I was a big dog, you know, when I was 24, I was managing 30 people. And I turned to writing because I became disillusioned with the world of startups and sales. And I began writing. And after writing, you know, some articles and, and essays about um, sales for different sales and startups, startup blogs, I began writing fiction. And I soon realized that for me, writing fiction was a specific form of salvation. Um, so when I quit, I, I said, okay, I'm, I'm writing seriously now. I began to travel as well because I just really needed to get away from the world that I was in. Um, and as I was traveling, I was writing, I was pitching uh, a first manuscript, didn't work out um, because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I'd read some articles here and there, but I had a lot of bluster and bravado coming out of this world of sales. And I thought that I could, you know, just use my personality to get into this world of, of literature and publishing. And that first manuscript, I got nine agents who wanted to look at it. And then when they did, I either got no response or just a bunch of rejections because the pitch was good due to my background, but the, um, the writing didn't hold up. So then I came home, I was at my parents' house, sleeping on a couch, uh, got some, you know, consulting work so that I could still make money traveled more and then rewrote that first manuscript and went back to the States. Nothing happened, you know, bunch of rejection. And I had this moment of serious doubt 
and I often describe it as creative rock bottom, it was a necessary humbling. I said, who did I think I was? That I could come from this world of startups and sales and then become a writer, no less a published author. Who did I think I was? Maybe, maybe this wasn't for me. Maybe, you know, all those people that have looked at me funny saying, why did you want to do this? You can't do this. We're right. Um, and it was in that place that I had a revelation and that revelation was uh, aided through reading Stephen King's on writing and getting some necessary and non-esoteric advice. Mm. And I said, you know what? I'm going to write the book uh, in the way that I want for the people I want to serve and to reflect the truth of myself and what I believe is the nation that we live in. And it was when I reached that point and coming to that state of freedom that I began what would be Black Buck. And while I definitely still wanted an agent, I, I definitely still wanted to get a book deal, they were no longer priority number one. Um, and there's a world, you know, when I'm not, where, where I'm not talking to you, <laughs> where <laughs> I'm working on my, my umpteenth manuscript. So I'm definitely uh, grateful to be here and I'm constantly trying to revise my outlook uh, to learn as much as I can and to give back as much as I can um, because, you know, nothing's guaranteed. I didn't have to be here. That's incredible. That Stephen King book on writing, it's it's a phenomenal book, isn't it? It's such an unassuming little paperback. Exactly. But it, it, uh, it sounds like it was a huge influence on you. I, I'm hearing in, in everything that you're saying to me, about this journey to becoming a writer. It was about like sheer force of will. Mm. Like your enthusiasm though is is very evident. Mm. It's sort of like you have this plan, it's kind of a plan, you know, and you know what the end goal is. Mm -hmm. You want to tell these stories. You want to put these stories out there and you have had to figure out the the way to get from here to sharing the stories that you want people to understand and yeah. I, and i feel like that's um that's quite a recipe and it's not an easy one people might look at you and think wow you're so young and wow you it was such an easy road for you you know people have to wait a long time before they get their first book published mm -hmm. um but it sounds to me like there really was a real Herculean effort for you to um, go out there and not just go out there with one manuscript, but with multiple ones. I mean, you've you've tried this, and I think you you have a lot figured out. But it wasn't an easy path for you by any stretch. Not at all, and, and I'm still figuring out so much. Um, for me, what was most difficult and what was truly the arduous task was identifying the things about myself that I didn't like and that didn't serve me and didn't serve those I loved most. And working one by one to get rid of them or at least to, to, to decrease them as much as I could have, you know, and, and putting um, better practices and habits and, and mode of thinking in their place that were healthier and more positive and beneficial to others. So I had to do a tremendous amount of work on myself, especially when I left that startup and my whole identity had been wrapped up in that startup and who I was there. Um, I had to do uh, an extreme amount of work to rebuild myself into the person who I wanted to be. So what helped me most was aside from my family who was there to, to, to help me um, 
get back to the better parts of myself and then gain uh, other more positive aspects. What helped me was just being extremely honest with myself. I try to be as honest with myself as much as possible. And when we're talking about writing and pursuing this craft, I had to say about that first manuscript, okay, stop thinking that you're just writing, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. Like this probably isn't as good as you think it is. And that's why these agents rejected it. What does that mean? You have to improve as a writer, you know, because there, there, there could have been, um, there could have been the thought of these people just don't understand. They just don't get it. What do you mean? This is a masterpiece, right? The first manuscript I wrote was not a masterpiece, you know, black bug. I'm not even going to say black buck is, uh, you know, that's, it's definitely not what I would say. Um, I hope that, you know, if people are still reading it in 50 years that, um, you know, it will still serve them in a way, even though I hope that the world will be drastically different by then. But the point is, is that I had to be very honest with myself about myself and also my work. And why wasn't I gaining representation? Why wasn't um, I, I being published? Why wasn't something resonating? So that was super important. And something you said, Yvette, is that I always wanted to get these stories out to people. Yeah, but it was really with Black Buck when that was the priority number one. With my second manuscript, I said, I figured it out. I'm gonna write this in a way that will make an agent, you know, give me a no brainer that they have to represent me. I wrote that second manuscript to get an agent mm. and it didn't happen. And then with Black Buck, I said, you know what? Now I know I'm writing this for other people. Now I know who I want to get this story in the hands in. And fortunately it worked out. Mateo, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Be well. Mateo Escarpor is the author of Black Buck. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Thanks for listening. You can write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>